Timothy. Paul wrote three letters um, personally addressed to his co-workers, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And even though the ordering in your Bibles has 2 Timothy 2nd, it is almost certainly the last of the three and almost certainly the last letter Paul wrote. Um, the way the New Testament is ordered is simply the letters of Paul from longest to shortest. There's no higher reason or purpose than that. And so we studied first 1 Timothy and then Titus and now 2 Timothy. If you pull out your insert, this morning what we'll endeavor to do is, is do a, set the setting for the book, identify its major themes, and cover the introduction. So this is sort of a big overview of the, of the epistle of 2 Timothy. Um, I'd also encourage you, in, in the coming two or three months that we'll be studying this epistle, it takes about rough, roughly about 10 minutes to read the book. And I just would encourage you to grow in familiarity with it. Um, I, I'd encourage you to try reading it once a day, reading it at breakfast or reading it two or three times a week. But I definitely think that the more familiar you grow with the material, especially hopefully after this morning we lay out some of the major themes so you're looking for them, the more the study will profit you and the more God's word will soak into you and that you'll be benefited by that. So let's dive in then with the background and setting. Unlike the other epistles of Paul, 2 Timothy probably has the most clear information about where he is and what's going on in his life. I, I would say it's really second only, or perhaps tied, with the epistle of 2 Corinthians for Paul putting his heart on his sleeve. It just oozes, oozes pathos. Paul's emotional. Paul is at the, near the end of his life. He's fought the good fight. He's run the race. And the letter finds him once again in a Roman prison. That's the first thing we find. Now, we're going to be flipping around a bunch. You're going to notice there's a lot of passages written here. Now, they're all, every single one of them, in 2 Timothy. So we're just talking about flipping a page back and forth. So bear with me, because we're going to go to these um, as we set the setting. Paul is in prison. If you look at verses uh, 16 and 17 in chapter 1. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. So Paul is in a Roman prison. This is his second imprisonment. He was imprisoned earlier when he wrote letters like Philippians. And he was released. And church history, although not an errant, uniformly agrees that Paul did make his aim to preach the gospel in Spain, as he records in Romans. And then again, near the end of his life, he was arrested a second time in Rome. And this... Um, will lead, church history tells us, to his execution, which is our second point. He's already passed through his first defense, his first round in the trial, but he does expect to be executed. He does expect this to end in his death. We look at that in uh, chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory 
forever and ever. Amen. So he's had one round of trial in Rome, and he stood boldly. The Lord strengthened him. Everyone else forsook him. And yet we see even there in verse 18, he expects this to end in his death. Look at, look at, verse, um, look at chapter 4, verse 6. I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who've loved his appearing. So Paul's in jail. He's in a Roman jail, which is not fun. They don't have cable TV or gyms. And he's an older man, probably in his late 60s, early 70s. He's facing what he expects to be execution. He's been bold in the trial so far. The next thing we see is that he is left almost entirely alone. Almost entirely alone. Look at chapter 1, 15 to 18. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hymogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anesiphorus. For he often refreshed me. He was not ashamed of my chains. So here's one who didn't abandon him, Anesiphorus. But everyone else abandoned him. Then we see a little later in chapter 4, verses 11 to 15. Let's pick it up in verse 9. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself. For he strongly opposed my message. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. So Paul is alone. Luke is with him. Anesiphorus at some point visited to see him and refreshed him. Now some have deserted him. Others he sent away for ministry's purposes. Titus, for instance, was sent away. Demas, one of his trampling companions, just apostatized and abandoned him in love with the world. And you just stop and think about that. You're, you're an old man. You're at the end of a long ministry. And you've just been bleeding out for the churches. Your heart's pulses for the churches. And here you are virtually alone, deserted, abandoned. People in your close ministry circle, abandoning the faith, You'd expect Paul to be discouraged. And in a sense, he is, but there's a joy and a confidence in this epistle, which is amazing. And it's one of the mysteries of Christianity. The joy and the confidence we have in the Lord doesn't necessarily replace, but it's in alongside of the sorrow. Paul is sorrowful. You can see it clearly. He's lonely. He's old. He's cold. He's facing death, and he wants companionship. And yet he's emphatic that God's strength and his grace has sustained him. Which brings us now to the point D. He wants Timothy to come to him soon. He wants Timothy to come to him soon. We see that clearly in verse 9 of chapter 4. Do your best to come to me soon. 
Verse 13. When you come, bring the cloak that I used with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Now, we'll, we'll deal with this when we get here later. I think it's remarkable. The Apostle Paul is an old man. He's in jail. He's facing death. And he still is working. He, he's not on vacation. He's not in retirement mode. Bring the books. Bring the cloaks. There might be time for more work, more reading, more study, more letters. The Apostle Paul is using every hour of daylight the Lord has given him to walk and to work. And he wants them to come quickly. He wants them to come quickly. Verse 21 of chapter 4. Do your best to come to me before winter. You can only imagine how cold it would be without that cloak in a Roman prison in wintertime. And so that's, that's the background. Paul, an old man, he's at the end of his life. He's run the course. He's completed his ministry but he is alone. You might expect after spending your life pouring into people, building, planting churches, that they would just gather around you a, a tumultuous crowd of supporters and friends. Not necessarily so. There's a handful of people that Paul trusts, and some of them he's got out doing ministry, but he's old and he's lonely. Now, I guarantee you when the Apostle Paul enters into glory, there'll be a crowd greeting him of people whose lives he's touched. But this side of the resurrection, this side of, of death... We don't necessarily receive our reward. And so things don't always turn out the way we'd expect. That's the background and setting. So Timothy is most likely in Ephesus, returned to Ephesus after meeting up with, with Paul, shepherding there, teaching there, and Paul wants him to come to him. So what are the major themes then in this book? Four chapters, 10 minutes to read. Three major themes arise. And this is probably where 2 Timothy is most distinct and separate from the other two pastoral epistles. 1 Timothy and Titus, if you remember, are overarching concerns are ordering and structuring of the church and dealing with false doctrine. It's 1 Timothy and Titus that both contain the extensive and precise list of qualifications for elders, for deacons. Paul tells Timothy as much, I wrote to you so that you'll know how to conduct yourself in the household of God which is the church in 1 Timothy. And Titus, he's left in there to establish the church. So 1 Timothy and Titus are focused on planting, being sort of a, a nursemaid to this baby church, establishing it. And now, at the other end, this is about passing the baton of ministry. This is about Paul stirring up Timothy to continue doing the work that Paul was entrusted it's a very different letter. In some senses, some have called this Paul's will and testament. Church history, without any counter-traditions, church history isn't authoritative, but it's as accurate as history books are accurate, tells us that Paul died, executed in Rome, around 67, 68 AD. So this is you know, probably within a few months or a year before this occurrence. And so the major themes that show up are going to be very distinct. This is the, the most different of the three epistles. The first theme is prepare to endure suffering. Prepare to endure suffering. Now, we don't know if Timothy was timid. He may have been. We don't know if Timothy was courageous, but Paul just knew far worse things were coming. All we do know is that Paul emphatically, repeatedly keeps encouraging Timothy and, and therefore encouraging us 
Not to be timid, not to be fearful, but to prepare to endure suffering. This is really a clear theme in the book. And if you read it and reread it, you won't be able to miss it. But look at 1.8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Chapter 2, verse 3. Share in suffering. As a good soldier of Christ Jesus. 3, 10 through 12. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, when persecuted. Persecutions, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in this life, in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted. You don't get much clearer than that. And then 4 or 5. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. You get the point? Paul wants Timothy ready, prepared to endure suffering. There are some in the church who attracted to people's itching ears. Paul will talk about that in this epistle, how people who don't want to hear biblical truth will find teachers who tell them what they want to hear. There are people in this country, people in the world who will tell you that if you come to Christ, you'll have an easy life. If you come to Christ, all will go well for you. And in the big, overarching, eschatological, end-of-time sense, all will go well for you if you come to Christ. However, while your outer man is perishing, your inner man will be renewed Coming to Christ will bring suffering. Coming to Christ will bring persecution. Coming to Christ will bring trials. He scourges everyone who he calls a son. He disciplines those he loves. He refines us in fire, and the world will hate us. People don't want to hear that. People want to hear that God's got a nice, happy plan for your life. You can have your best life now. If you're having your best life now, you're going to hell. Think about that. If this is as good as it gets, you're not going to heaven because heaven will be much better. It's a lie that we sell to Christians that you can avoid suffering, you can avoid sorrow, you can avoid persecution, you can have an easy life if you come to Christ, and then people's faith is shipwrecked and shattered when trials come. And so as we go through this book, we will see emphatically that is not the case. All who desire to be godly will suffer persecutions. So how do we do this? First, united with other believers. There's big emphasis here. Paul, share with me in suffering. We're not to do it alone. If you're suffering, one of the worst things you can do is isolate yourself, pull yourself away, lick your wounds. Notice the emphatic, repeated emphasis here. Share in sufferings. 1.8, therefore, do not be ashamed the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in sufferings for the gospel by the power of God. Two, three, share in sufferings. And we already heard about Onesiphorus, who at the end of chapter one came and ministered to Paul, sharing in his sufferings. We, how do we do that? If, if, if Christian life is a call to suffer, a call to die, 
Jesus was pretty upfront about it. Pick up your cross, follow me, and die. How do you do that? You do it together. You do it with each other. We, we, we share in each other's sorrows. Weep with those who weep. And so if you're in a season of life where you are suffering, if you're in a season of life where you are in trials, don't isolate yourself. Let the body share the weight of the burden. Secondly, we, we suffer for the sake of the gospel. And that's repeated. 1, 8 through 12, Paul states his apostleship. He's talking about the gospel Therefore, verse 8, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the power, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher which is why I suffer as I do you get that Paul is not suffering for his own sin Paul is not suffering for his own foolish decisions we, we may do that Paul is suffering for the gospel he's suffering for Christ he's suffering for being a Christian we do it together we do it for the gospel. And we do it through the power of God's spirit and his grace. We do it through the power of the spirit and grace. Look at this. Paul, knowing that suffering is coming Timothy's way, Paul, knowing it's going to get worse, tells him in chapter 1, verse 6, for this reason, I remind you, fan into flames the spirit of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and self-control and love. How's Paul supposed to stand facing persecutions? How is he supposed to endure suffering and sorrow? Not in his own strength, not in his own power, not with the power of positive thinking, but with the spirit. And the power that God supplies. That's how. Again, look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. You then, my child, be strengthened by self-confidence. No, by believing in yourself. No, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others to do also. How do you endure suffering? How do you prepare to suffer? How do you prepare for conflicts and persecutions? You rely on God's strength, not your own. You trust in him, not yourself. You look to him, not your own ability, skill, or wisdom. So that's the first major theme. We need to prepare to suffer. We need to prepare to suffer. In God's providence, we may go through seasons where we're not suffering. We may go through seasons and times where, where persecution is not present. But the norm in church history, the norm across the ages is suffering. And Jesus is clear about it. His disciples are clear about it. But there are many, many today who want to pretend that's not the case. And they do us no favors. Because then when the storm comes, we are undone. We are dismayed and we are vexed and we don't understand why God would let this happen. 
The Apostle Paul is telling Timothy, precisely because God loves you, precisely because he will refine you, it's coming. It's coming. So prepare to endure suffering. Secondly, rely upon the word of God. Rely upon the word of God. That's the other major emphasis in this book is the centrality of Scripture, the centrality of God's word to supply what we need. Firstly, we are to hold fast to it, to follow it, and to guard it. To hold fast, follow, and guard the word of God. Look at 1.13. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. What we're going to see is the counterbalance to this is the error and pockets of error coming up. If you keep reading in chapter 1, he'll talk about some error. The truth needs to be guarded because spiritual warfare is, always has been, about truth. What people will believe. And so our enemy, our adversary, is out there tweaking, twisting, perverting truth, trying to sow bad seeds in the Lord's field. And so we've got to hold fast to it. We've got to cling to it. We've got to know it. We've got to study it. We've got to defend it. We've got to protect it. We've got to guard the deposit. Paul's going to tell him in the next chapter, because I want you to pass it on to other people. That's why you've got to guard it. What the church does not defend, we will surely lose. Those truths that we don't defend, we will lose. Second, study to interpret it rightly. Study to interpret it rightly. What, what use is a word we don't understand? What use is a word that is, is confusing and un, we're unable to read and do anything with? And Of course, there will always be passages of Scripture which are difficult. The Apostle Peter, writing in his second letter, speaks of some of Paul's passages as hard to understand. But just because some parts of the Word of God are hard to understand doesn't remove our responsibility to study. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. I'm sure this is a familiar verse. In fact, I believe this is the verse that Awana, the acronym Awana comes from, isn't it? Approved workmen need not be ashamed. Or is, did I get that wrong? Or is that how? Okay. Are not ashamed. Approved workers, men are not ashamed. Comes right from here. 2.15, do your best that's all you can do. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now work that backwards. If this is how one should not be ashamed, what is the implication of those who do not study, who do not try to understand Scripture? They will have cause for shame. How do, you, how do you want to not be ashamed of the Lord's appearing? As you look back at counting over your life, one of the pieces of that is study the Bible to rightly handle it, to divide it correctly. We've got to study to interpret the word rightly. Third, disciple and train others in it. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is where we get the acronym. This, this, this whole book's the foundation of all of our acronyms. This is where tough men comes from. Training up faithful men. 
And notice the generations here. You then, what you have heard from me. So it starts with Paul to Timothy. In the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men. There's the third generation. Who will be able to teach others also. This is a four-generational view to passing on the word and securing it in the church. Paul to Timothy to faithful men who will pass it on to faithful men. We don't, we don't hide the light under the bushel. We teach the word and we pass it on. The good deposit entrusted to us. We disciple and train others with it. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. Now the picture of the home. Timothy had godly, a godly mother and grandmother. We, we read about that in chapter 1. And here, look at the use of Scripture to bring young Timothy to faith. Verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Every good work the Lord requires us to do starts with the scriptures. And the competency and the information and the encouragement that the scriptures give to enable us to do those works. And from childhood, Paul is saying, you've been steeped in them and that's a good thing. It's a good thing that we teach our children the scriptures and we keep training them and we never move on to another book. We never graduate from the Bible to what comes next. But everything for every good work that we need is here. And this is the sufficiency of scripture. There is no good thing God calls you to do that scripture is not going to give you the information you need to do it. There's no good thing. It's right there. That the man of God, verse 17, may be competent, equipped for every good work. That, that's mind-blowing. It doesn't equip us for everything, just everything God calls us to do. What riches we have. What a gift we have. Everything we need for everything God has called us to do, everything is right here. No wonder we need to study it, hold fast to it, and interpret it rightly, and train others in it. And, and fourth, Proclaim, teach, and defend it. Proclaim, teach, and defend it. And this is really especially tied in with Paul's ministry. We saw this earlier in chapter 1. But he describes his apostleship in verse 11. Tied to the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, and an apostle, and a teacher. And the difference between preaching and teaching is preaching is proclamation. In the New Testament, it's most commonly, that verb for preach, is actually most commonly associated with evangelism. When Jesus is speaking to large crowds, when Peter speaks to 3,000 men at Pentecost, they are proclaiming, they're heralding, they are announcing. That's one aspect of the ministry of the word. And there's teaching, and Jesus modeled that with the disciples. And Teaching often will involve question and answer, and give and take, and dialogue. And that's what we need to be doing with the word. There's, there's a time and a place for heralding. When you evangelize, you are announcing truth. You are declaring truth to someone, hopefully gently, hopefully kindly. 
You're, you're announcing something. And when we speak to each other, we're teaching each other. We proclaim it. We teach it. We defend it. Look at chapter 2, verse 24 through 26. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So the man of God, the, the slave of Christ, needs to not be a jerk, but patient, willing to be wronged, able to teach. And clearly, in the context of 2 Timothy, what he's teaching is Scripture. Why? To correct those who are in error, gently. We defend the truth. And then turn to chapter 4 for what is... Easily, the, the, the most grand and solemn charge I'm aware of in the Bible. At the seminary that Pastor Daniel and I went to, there's a big plaque down in the, the foyer. And it just had 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, or at least part of this, written on it. But I, I want you to think, is there anything else Paul could stack up here to make this more solemn? Is there anything he could add on, like double dog, dare you, pinky... There's nothing, when you read, there's nothing you can add on top of this. Listen to this. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now, I'm not entirely sure yet what in season and out of season mean, but I can guarantee you one thing. We're either in season or we're out of season, right? So what does it mean? Always and at all times, preach the word. Now this is tied specifically to Timothy's giftedness and his ministry. But, but I would say for all of us, be ready to speak truth. That's what the body does. And sometimes it'll be announcing and heralding and preaching, and sometimes it'll be teaching. Because it goes on from saying, preach the word, to include reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. This is the full-orbed ministry of the word. Not any one particular application. Whether it's popular and people applaud, or whether it's the season where people don't like it, preach the word, teach the word, exhort with the word. So there's a heavy emphasis in this book on Scripture. Third, sort of bringing these two together, if Timothy will not be timid, if he will not be fearful, if he will be courageous, if he will be willing to suffer, and if he is cleaving himself to the Word, and if he is studying the Word, and if he is teaching the Word, then he'll be ready for the Lord's service. He'll be ready for the Lord's service. And that's the other major theme that comes through this, that Paul wants Timothy, and sort of reading between the lines, he wants him to continue on the work he is doing. And there's three things necessary for this. First, if we're going to be ready, if we're going to ready ourselves to be useful in the Lord's service, we need to flee sin and temptation. Chapter 2, verse 20 through 22. Now in a great house, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable use. He's making an analogy. There are things in your house that you cherish. If you've got a big plasma screen TV, you put it in a place of prominence and you dust it. 
There are other things in the house, like say the old egg carton, which don't get treated with the same reverence. It was useful, but you treat it very differently. In a great house, there are vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. I wonder where I heard every good work before. You want to be useful in God's service? You want to be a useful tool in the hand of the master? You need to cleanse yourself from everything that's dishonorable, which sets up the imperative in verse 22. Therefore, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. You want to be ready and useful for the Lord? You want to be a hammer or a tool in his hand that he can wield? In a powerful way, get rid of sin, fight sin, flee temptation and lust. And you can be useful. Second, we need to stay focused on the task at hand. Apparently there was some danger in Paul's mind of Timothy losing focus. This is often the attack of the enemy, especially when times are prosperous, is simply to distract us. It's not that we hate God. It's not that we rebel against God. It's just that we're interested in other things. Like, you know, the new movie that's coming out, or the season finale of my favorite show, or the good novel that I'm reading, or whatever. We get distracted, and we're not useful. Look at uh, verses chapter 2, 3 to 7. Share in sufferings as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Civilian pursuits aren't wicked. They just distract you if you're a soldier. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Athletes training. If any of you have kids who have, who've been in athletic competitions, especially a team that's going to state finals, th those people are focused. They're not taking weeks off at a time. They're, they're focused on the prize. They're focused on the goal. They're focused on, on getting to the finish line. And so they get rid of distractions. Things that aren't in and of themselves bad, but they get rid of them so they can be single-mindedly focused. You want to be useful to the Lord? Be focused. Don't get distracted. Chapter 2, 14 to 18. Remind them of these things. Charge them before God not to quarrel about words which do no good but only ruin the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodlessness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Stay focused. Don't get caught up in these, these Bible code novel teachings that just cause disputes and quarreling and internet blog wars. And Well, it's not in here, but if Paul were writing now, that'd be in here. Facebook arguments or whatever it is that can distract you from the truth, can distract you from being useful to the Lord. Your 371th reply on a Facebook post is not terribly useful to the Lord. 
Avoid irreverent babble. It will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Stay focused on the task at hand. And finally, persevere and fulfill your ministry. And that's the other thing. Paul has made it to the end. He's facing the finish line. He has not turned back, putting his hands on the plow. He has not turned back. And yet now he wants Timothy to have that same resolve. He wants Timothy to, to persevere and fulfill his ministry. Look at chapter 1, 6 through 7. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flames the gift of God which is yours through the laying on of your hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So it starts with the giftedness of Timothy. Now, Timothy has a unique giftedness, and your giftedness may not be Timothy's giftedness, but you are gifted. The Lord has equipped you for ministry. Are you aware of that? Do you think about that? Are you concerned? What can I do to develop, to cultivate, to fan into flames my giftedness? so that I can fulfill my ministry. The Lord has ministry for each and every one of you. Pastor Daniel and I are not the ministers of this church. We are all the ministers. Christ gave the church, the apostles, the prophets, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Go, go back and reread that verse in Ephesians 4. To whom does the work of the ministry rightly, rightly belong? The saints. Pastors and teachers, they're the trainers and the equippers and, and in so much as they're saints they have part in that work too the work of the ministry is ours not, not mine and Pastor Daniel's or the elders the work of the ministry is ours God has given you a work of ministry and he will demand an accounting and he's given you giftedness for the work of your ministry and he will demand an accounting and so it's got to start with I got giftedness and I need to fan that into flames and I need to Stay focused, and i got to cleanse myself, and i got to persevere to fulfill my ministry so I can say at the end of my life like the Apostle Paul does in chapter 4. Go to chapter 4. Verse 6 through 8. Oh, how I wish on my deathbed to be able to say what Paul says here. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good faith, the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This isn't just a reward that Paul alone is getting. But it's open to all of us. It's open to every one of us. If we will be faithful, if we will persevere to the end. It's interesting to note the, the final faithful saying in the pastorals occurs in chapter 2, and it's all about our need to persevere, our need to make it to the finish line. True Christians persevere. We, we, we in the church, take a half-truth Eternal security is, was the Reformation doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, which is true that the Lord will shepherd his sheep. None will slip through his hand. He will shepherd them into persevering. The scripture is, is emphatic on this point. We don't make it to the end. We aren't his. 
That's what, that's what this proverb in, in chapter 2 says. If we've died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. And I can show you a dozen other passages that say that. Now, our hope and confidence is the Lord will shepherd us. He will not allow that to happen. He will not let us fall away. He will not let us deny him. But we must persevere to the end. We must. We must persevere to the end. The book of Hebrews emphatically makes that point as well. And when we persevere to the end, it won't be because of our strength. It will be because he shepherded us, because he tended us, because he at times disciplined us. Disciplined us. Disciplined. Wow. Okay. But we must make it to the end. We must. Those are the themes of the book. And so now, in two minutes, we will cover the opening greeting. And I really encourage you to read and reread the book this week and, and look for those themes. Suffering. The words. Centrality. And preparing ourselves for useful service. Like every greeting, it contains an author, a recipient, and then some form of greeting. The first two verses, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, there's a lot there. The author is Paul. And next to his name, he, he gives his ministry position. He's an apostle. And where does that come from? Is this something he signed up for? Is this something he worked at? No, it's by the will of God. And what is his apostleship in reference to? An apostle is one who is sent with a message. What, what, what is he sent in reference to? According to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Or as he says a little later in verse 11, in according to the gospel. Paul was sent to announce the good news that even though we are sinners, even though we have all gone our own way, even though we have rebelled and said no to God, Christ came and he lived a sinless life and he died for us on the tree and on the cross. As Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. He died for our sins and he rose again. And if we will turn to him in faith, we can be forgiven. That's Paul's apostleship is about announcing that message, about communicating that message. He writes to Timothy, his beloved child, probably because Paul led him to faith, or if not led him to faith, discipled him like a father. Now it's also interesting that the, the letter is not just written to Timothy, but also to the church. If you turn to the final verse of chapter 4, um, at least in the ESV, there's a footnote on that final word, you. The Lord be with your spirit, grace be with you, and really it's grace be with you all. Paul is expecting others to read this letter, which also explains why he starts off with his credentials. It might seem odd if this was just a personal correspondence between two close friends to, to start so formally. I probably wouldn't write an email to my wife, Jeremy Kidder, senior pastor at Martinsdale Community Church by the congregational vote and recommendation of the elders. Probably wouldn't. And if I did, she'd probably have something to say. Um, but Paul starts off this way, I think in part because he expects others will be reading this. And he wants them to know the authority from which he speaks. And then finally, we get to the greeting. Grace mercy, and peace. 
grace, mercy, and peace. What Paul's done is he's tweaked out the standard greeting. The, the Hebrew greeting was shalom, or peace, and the, the Greek greeting was kadas, or grace. And he adds in mercy as he does in Titus. Grace, mercy, and peace. And with that, we will begin our study. We're going to dive into this grand epistle, this old man facing the finish line, but looking back to make sure that other faithful men are coming behind him to finish building on the foundation that he started. Oh, we'll have a good study through this book. Lord God, we just pray that you would work in our hearts, that you would work in our lives so that we would not be terrified by the prospects of suffering. Suffering is not pleasant. You've not called us to to enjoy it, but rather to persevere and rejoice in the grace that you give in and through it, to rejoice in the work that you will do in and through it, Lord. And your word equips us for that. So, Lord, we pray that you would cause us to cleave to your word, to hold fast to your word, to cherish and prize it, to defend it, to announce it, to teach it. And, Lord, we pray that you would cause us to be useful for your purposes that you would cause us to persevere to the end, that you would not let any of us slip through your hands. And Lord, we rejoice knowing that you have promised to do that very thing, that he who began a good work in us will complete it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.